Hey, so we're wrapping it up here in Thessalonians. Um, the Thessalonian church, just a few thoughts as we get into it here. We're, um, as we know, a group that after the first letter had been written to them, the heat had been turned up on this crew. They were suffering under the hand of the Roman Empire. They were suffering as believers living in a Greek culture. And uh, with the combination of the heat being turned up on them and just the influence of some people that had come into the midst of the church, um, many of those who were in the church felt like they had a wrong understanding of the return of Christ and a time of tribulation that would come upon the earth. And so they were questioning what was going on. As they were enduring suffering and, and trouble, they began to ask, hey, are we living in the midst of the great tribulation? Is Jesus Christ coming? Should we quit our jobs? And all sorts of different things were happening. And the result, as we've seen uh, through this second letter as we've been working through it is, is that though the church was continuing to grow in their love for one another, though they were uh, continuing to grow in faith, they were struggling with their sense of hope in the coming of Christ. And as we've talked about several times in this series, it's when, when you lose hope, faith and love begin to get undermined. You need those three things, faith, hope, and love. And they questioned what they had been taught. They were questioning the return of Christ. And so to address the issue of their hope, the steadfastness of the Christian hope, Paul in chapter 1 first reminded the church about uh, the righteous nature of God. That though they were suffering at this time, that God in his righteous justice would come and he would rule on their behalf. He would eventually rule in their favor. He would give his people justice. And those who were, who were evil and not following the things of God to them, he would also administer an eternal justice of destruction for the unrighteous. And then in chapter 2, Paul talked about just the incorrect view of the coming of the Lord that they had adopted and about their gathering to him. And he, he taught the church about the coming of the Antichrist, uh, the man of lawlessness, we called him, the son of perdition. Paul taught how in the last days there would be a departure from the faith. How uh, as the man of lawlessness promoted himself with signs, and, and wonders and miracles that those who refuse to love the truth would be led astray by this great world leader, this Antichrist. And he would take the world into a place where they would love unrighteousness. And what Paul's talked about was them being condemned, him being condemned with those who did not believe the truth. Now, last week, we started to move into, towards this chapter here. And what we saw is Paul began to just take the conversation from prophecy to, to practical stuff. He started to say, look, this prophecy is good stuff. We got to know it. We got to understand it. But it never stops there. We're not about speculation. We're not about setting calendars and dates and things like that. We want to practically live out and have these things affect our lives. And so the instructions that we saw at the end of chapter 2 was this. Paul said, you, you guys need to believe the truth in light of this. God loves you. Hang on to that truth. He's chose you and he set you apart to save you. He sanctified you. Hold on to those truths. Believe them in your heart. He's called you. 
He's going to uh, lead you into glory as you follow Jesus Christ. You're eventually going to share in the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold to those things. Believe those truths. Stand firm in them and practice the truth in your life. In, in your work, in the words of your mouth, practice uh, those truths. You know, I was, so thinking about that is what, what Paul was preaching in my mind is just full circle Christian living. You know, there's a great illustration in some of the discipleship material that we work through uh, called the wheel. And in this picture of the wheel, right at the center is Christ. He, he's the hub on which our life is to spin and be directed and be guided by. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it, it, the word of God tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ at the center. That's what Paul's talking about here. Full circle Christian living. And when Christ is at the center, the result is, is that there needs to be a conformity to the nature of God. There needs to be a conformity to uh, his person and his character and a, a growing obedience and holiness in the lives of God's people as we follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever has my commands, we're going to be talking about the commands of Jesus this morning. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will show myself to him. I too will love him and show myself to him. And so Paul, is, as he moves further from, into the conversation of practical, from prophecy to practical, he's going to just take us on this little bit of a journey of obedience. When Christ is at the center of your life, how does it affect the Christian life in motion. How, how does it affect your living, your work, your words, your deeds, your everything? It touches it. And so let's check it out. Verse 1, he says this. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Has happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So first thing, you know, as he is sharing some of these practical things, Paul says this, guys, please pray for us. You know, don't pray. He doesn't, you know what I like about Paul here? He doesn't, you know, pray for the church program. You know, doesn't, don't, don't pray for the project that we're working on. What does he say? He says, pray for the ministry of the word of God. Pray for the preaching of the word to happen in our lives. You know, there's a story told of uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of the 19th century that, uh, you know, his church was thousands of people in London, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and, and not only was it a hub in London, but people would come from all over the place to hear a Spurgeon preach. And so one 
Sunday afternoon, after the morning services, a bunch of ministers showed up in London to take in the evening service. And as they arrived at the building, they saw this kind of stout guy standing outside. And they said, as they were looking at the building and just admiring some of that, they said, hey, uh, would you mind taking us for a tour? Would, would you show us the power plant of this place and just, you know, how some of the structures work because, you know, these pastors wanting to check out this building. So he said, yeah, sure, come on, in with me. Took them down into the basement, down a long hall, and down at the end, he opened a door, and there when he opened the door was a prayer meeting happening with 200 men on their knees praying for the evening service, and he said, here, gentlemen, is the power plant of this church. Prayer, prayer. The funny part of the story is that the guy that they thought was the janitor was actually the pastor. It was Spurgeon himself. Look, he knew where power lay in the ministry. He knew where power lay in the teaching of the word of God and in the work that God was doing in the midst of their church. Prayer. And Paul coveted the prayers of God's people. Now, I would say this this morning. Paul's long gone. Uh, he doesn't need your prayers, but I could use them, you know. I, you know, when you think of me, pray for the preaching of the word of God in our church, that it would be powerful. When you, when you think of the, our other churches, you know, in this community and their pastors, pray for them, that the word of God would be taught with authority and with power and, and not just traditions of men, but by the power of the spirit. You know, Paul says, pray that the word would speed ahead. Pray that the word would be honored amongst God's people. You know, when we talk about God's word, the, the word is alive. It's, you know, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. The word of God is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's living. You know, when you think of our church, pray that the word of God would move forward speedily. Pray that it would pierce our heart. Kind of neat to think of the word of God moving ahead speedily. Psalm 147 verse 15 says this, He sends out his commands on the earth, and his word runs swiftly. You know, Paul at different times experienced prison, experienced persecutions, experienced tr suffering. But when he was speaking to his, his young prodigy, uh, his, son, his son in the faith, Timothy, he said, look, I'm suffering. When he was in Rome at the end of Nero's life in his last letter, he says, I'm suffering. I'm bound with chains, but the word of God is not. The word of God is not bound. And you know, when we think about the church and the ministry of the church, you know, it, ju it just seems like in the culture in which we live and some of the dynamics and things that have been happening in North America, in the church in the last, you know, number of decades, it, it, it's like too much of the work of the ministry is sought to be accomplished through programs or through, you know, human plans or through human promotions and there's been a departure from the word of God in many ways. And look, here in our church, 
I'm not interested in programs. <laughs> not interested in human promotion. Have their place, have their spot. But the power is in the teaching of the word of God as Jesus Christ is glorified. May his word move forward speedily. May it be honored here in our midst. You know, we look at this world. I mean, look out the windows for me. You understand that by the word of God, God spoke matter into existence. By his word, he spoke the things that were not seen so that they could be made visible, Hebrews tells us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and by his word, he sustains all things. He holds it all together. The word is powerful. So when you think of our church, when you think of me, pray for the ministry of the word. One pastor said this, it's not the task, the task is to feed the sheep, not entertain the goats. <laughs> I like that. Feed the sheep. Paul also said, pray that we would be delivered from wicked men. You know that not all men have faith. There's wolves. There's wolves who dress themselves in sheep's clothing. There are those who, who love darkness and they don't want to come into the light lest their deeds be exposed. Not all men have faith. You know, there's always opposition to the, to the word and the work of God. I've been, you know, just with some of my connections on, on uh, Facebook, uh, you know, amongst Calvary Chapel, there's a pastor named Saeed. Has anybody seen the free Saeed campaign that's online going on right now? Saeed, a, a pastor out of Boise, Idaho, American, Iranian, went back to Iran to do, do a little bit of work, arrested. He's been in prison for three years. And it, it's like, it's going really, really bad for Saeed. His wife and children are at home in Boise, Idaho. And he was just, he just went in to do some, do some work. It was actually not specific church work, but they arrested him. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, he, he needs prayer that he would be delivered from wicked men. Paul needed prayer. You know, church leaders need prayer for that. But the beauty is this. Paul said this, the Lord's faithful. Not all men have faith, but the Lord... The Lord is faithful. You know, we need to be reminded that, you know, we don't face opposition in our own strength. You know, Kevin's testimony this morning, with the, they, didn't, they didn't get through that on their strength alone. But God strengthened them. And, you know, whatever opposition we face, whether, whether it's trials and suffering or whether it's the opposition of those who are faithless men, we can be assured of this. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful and he will be faithful uh, to his people. Paul says this, he, he will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. You know, I, I got to say this. I, I mean, the Lord is... I've let the Lord down so many times. You know, if I was just to go through, if any of us go through our lives and we think about the ways in which, you know, we might sense that we've let the Lord down. I mean, it's countless. But, you know, God has never let me down. 
I've never been let down by the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus has never failed me. The word of God has never let me down. God will not let you down. He will establish you and he will guard you. And so to go to him in that place of prayer, so important. Paul says this in verse four, and we have confidence in the Lord about you. That you are doing and will do the things that we command. As he's about to get into some of these commands. You know, Paul's, Paul's confidence in the church. His confidence in the perseverance of these believers in this uh, Greek city, Thessalonica, who are undergoing persecution. Look, I mean, Paul wasn't blind to their flaws. He's going to talk about some of their flaws. You know, that's the thing about the church. The, the church has flaws. It's made up of people. Human beings. Uh... There's flaws. The church has needs. But as Paul was aware of those things and saw those things, he, he, he recognized that God would be faithful to himself and to the people that he had called after himself. You know, the church, this congregation that we're about to read about here in a second, was not living consistent with the message they had received. But Paul was confident that they would do the things that he was about to command them. He says in verse 5, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I like that verse. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. You know, what, what more does the human heart need for its sense of confidence and its sense of security than to know the love of God and to, look, to know that Jesus is steadfast, faithful, sure, that we are the beloved of God. You know, I might ask you this, what's got you spiritually on the run this morning? You know, what's, what's got the peace of your heart on the run? What unsettled you? Who disturbed your peace? Know this, God loves you. Christ is steadfast. He will be faithful uh, to his promises to you. Uh, know this, the work of the cross is sure. The power of his blood to atone for your sin is, is sure. The love of God and the steadfastness of Christ, you can, it's money in the bank, as my kids like to say. Money in the bank. You know, the idea of the, the heart being directed towards the steadfastness of Christ also carries this idea in this sense that it's, that the heart is hoping in the coming of the Lord. You know, that's one of the focuses, as we've been talking about, of this letter. The return of Christ, that hope, the blessed hope of the believers. May your heart know that Jesus is coming. May it be steadfast in that belief. You know, many things are vying for, for the, the affections and the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And, and, and Paul just says, may yours, may your heart, amidst all the things that are vied for it, may yours be loyal to the Lord, to his love, to him who is steadfast. He says in verse six, now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness 
and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Strong language, right? Strong verse. When, when I, he says, now we command you. You know, when I think of the commands of the scripture, my, my mind never seems to go to the New Testament. I, always, I automatically default to the Old Testament when I think of commands and, and these sorts of instructions. You know, I think of the Ten Commandments or different Old Testament laws. But Paul uses that powerful word right here, I command you. I direct you. A command, it, it carries the idea of a military instruction handed down from one superior officer to fellow soldiers. And the authority of Paul's command, look, is given in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That title, the Lord Jesus Christ, just obviously infers the lordship of Jesus, but it, it infers that Jesus Christ is God. You know, when we just uh, think about that name, Christ is, is Greek translated into English. Jesus is actually Greek translated into English, Jesus Christ. The, the Jewish name, the Hebrew way of saying Jesus Christ is Yeshua HaMashiach. Yeshua, Joshua, the Lord is salvation, HaMashiach. Uh, the anointed one. The Lord is salvation, the anointed one. That is the name of the, the title of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in front of that name, the Lord is salvation, the anointed one. Paul calls Jesus Christ Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted son of God, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, who is God. You know, the, the lordship of Jesus, when we talk about uh, the lordship of Jesus Christ, that title in my mind, it just, it just stretches the idea for me of the rule of the kingdom of God, you know. I, as I was praying for our services when I said, Lord, Stretch out the scepter of your rule over our lives. It, it's, you know, I, so often our lives are just, we limit the rule of God from between, you know, 10 to 11.30 on a Sunday morning. Sometimes 11.45. Sometimes it stretches a little longer. <laughs> but we, we can limit the rule of the Lord. How far does the rule of God extend in your life? Paul's going to chat about two places in specific that the reign of God, the, the, the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the commands of the Lord are to influence. There are things that his rule should touch in your life. King Jesus, you know that old saying, if he's Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. King Jesus is to be Lord of everything. Everything in our lives is to come under the authority of his rule. And Paul's going to address two specific areas here. He's going to talk about how the lordship of Christ touches your work. And he's going to talk about how the lordship of Jesus Christ touches your money management. Firstly, a little work address. Paul says this. By the, uh, he says this by the command of the Lord. That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. You know, work. 
It's talking about work. The, the idea that a man should work has its origins all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You say, yeah, right. When sin came into the picture and God cursed him and he had to work. Actually, no. Work was part of God's design before sin ever entered the picture. Adam was created and he was assigned in the garden before he took part of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with his wife Eve. Right from the time that God created Adam, he assigned him work. Labor was a part of his life before sin came into the picture. Genesis chapter 2.15 says that the Lord took man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to guard it, to keep it. Work it. Keep it, guard it. And when the Lord, when Adam did participate with his wife and, and took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the Lord spoke a curse upon Adam's sin, what did God curse? He cursed his work to have toil in the midst of it. Stinking blackberries, man. There's the toil on the Sunshine Coast. You know, we bought our place and the backyard was just, it was an older lady who had had it and the backyard was just completely overgrown. Had to take down big alder trees that had just been let go. And I hacked all the blackberries down and got it all clear. Then I didn't get any further. And the blackberries. <laughs> In we go. Hack them all down, the blackberries. So then I decided, okay, one swipe with the lawnmower at a time here. <laughs> bit at a time, a bit at a time. And they keep coming. You know, God has created man to work. But work itself is it's not the result of sin. Work is part of God's design. You know, it's, it's for your fulfillment. Work is for your purpose, for you to have fine purpose. You know, work is for your provision financially. God has given you work for your sanctification so that you'd be made holy. You know, work is a theologically beautiful thing that God gave you two hands. Go and earn a living. God created man to work. And you know, if you were to cruise the, the pages of scripture, you'll notice that God never called a man when he was laying on the couch with a bag of popcorn and a remote in his hand. <laughs> Even though that's a great place. <laughs> At the end of a long day of work. <laughs> Moses was tending his father-in-law's sheep. God called him. Joshua was serving hard at the right hand of Moses as he was leading the people of Israel. God called him. Gideon, in a wine press, hiding, but he was working, threshing wheat. David, he was looking after his father's sheep. You know, John and James were working with their dad, learning the family trade on the Sea of Galilee. Peter and Andrew, them too. Learning and earning a living on the water. You know, the Lord Jesus himself applied his hands to the work of a tradesman, a carpenter. Paul, he was a tent maker and he used his skills to support his ministry. God's people are to work. And you know, some of, some of the culture, I would say, you know, makes it its aim, you know, not to work. <laughs> that would be just the, the ultimate thing in life, not to work. But you know, that can have an influence on the people of God, on the, on the church. We can adopt the same thinking. 
In Thessalonica, they were like, man, Jesus is coming. Let's all quit our jobs. Let's live off what everybody else is doing. Let's, let's become welfare cases to the good, the, the good people who are working in the midst of the church. And it was, it was creating tension in the church. There was a burden. There was those that weren't doing their thing and those that were. And, and it was creating some issues. God's people to work. Now, some people can't work. We know that. There's some people, because of different circumstances, physical incapacities, whatever, uh, they, they can't work. But there's also many people who just simply won't work. Not that they can't, they won't. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about this crew in the church who just decided, we're not working. And his command is this, keep away from them. Strong words. You know, it's a different story when someone can't work and, and is in need. Then, then the church should come alongside and help and pick up and, and carry and look after and share with and, and have community and be the body of Christ that they're called to be. But Paul is talking about someone who won't work. And in this church, yeah, I guess there was those who were just theologically confused about, about work and about you know, waiting for the return of Christ and, and the tribulation and all these different things. And they just decide we're, we're not working. Jesus is coming back. We're going to live off the generosity of other people. God's people are to work. That's all simply what Paul's saying. But if hearing the command of the Lord wasn't enough, Paul also pointed to his own example. Look at verse seven. He said this, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. You know, Paul the apostle came to Thessalonica. He, he planted that church. With the Lord as his guide, he went there. He did the work of the ministry right from the ground up. He laid the foundation of the church and God blessed it. People got saved and the thing took off. You know, often when you just observe what God does in churches, when you watch the founding pastor, the pastor who's planted a church, uh, go in and do a, minute, a work and God blesses it and it goes and it takes off. What you find is, it's just interesting, and you'll know what I'm talking about in a second here, that pastor will have a very long leash with the people. Because, you know, he's established the work, and as the founder, he's earned the right. He, he's earned some space and some love and some grace from people. You know, people will look at that minister and they will recognize what the Lord has done through that man's ministry and there is a natural respect that follows and they'll give him some room to lead. They'll say, you're the pastor, you lead. And then often when that founding pastor moves on, the next guy comes in and he has a hard time because he doesn't have the same sense of respect from the body of Christ that that pastor earned because he planted the church. Look, in Thessalonica, Paul planted the church. You know, if there was ever a pastor to whom the church was financially responsible to see that he was taken care of and that he could earn a living from doing the work of the ministry, it was Paul. You know, before the Lord, the church had an obligation to him. And Paul had the right to expect financial support. 
But Paul said this, in your midst, I purposefully gave up that right so that I could be an example to you. Your young church, I, I gave up that right so that I could be an example to young believers. And it wasn't just in Thessalonica that Paul did that. It was often the pattern of his ministry. He did the same thing in Corinth and in different places where he went, where he could have demanded finances and he didn't. You know, I just find that so fascinating. Just think of our culture. Church, TV, the guys that are on TV, you know, it's just, we observe countless health and wealth TV preachers, don't we? You know, who use their ministry and their church to line their pockets, to buy their fancy cars, to have their various homes, and they, they maybe fleece God's people and, you know, satisfy the lust of their flesh and justify it. You know, it's been said that selfish leaders use the people to build up their support and are always claiming their rights. But a truly dedicated leader will use his rights to build up people and he will lay aside his rights and privileges for the sake of others. Paul did this. He proved his leadership amongst God's people. He proved his leadership amongst God's people and he said, I laid that down. I was kind of nervous about getting to this part of the text because I want to talk a little bit about the ministry that the Lord's given me. And I'm often quiet about it. I, I don't share it because I'm not looking to twist people's arms or be manipulative or any, anything like that. You know, I want to follow as God directs. Two and a half years ago, I had to go back to work. I'd been full-time at this church for a few years. And just the way it was, finances were tight, this, that, whatever. I said, oh, it's okay. For a few months, I'll go back. I'll cut down half-time at the church. And I'll go, God is, you know, I could do different things. I could fleece the flock. I could come down hard on them. I could do this. But God give me a way for provision. They're called two hands. It's summer. We'll take a break. I'll go earn some money. And so we did. We did it for, you know, I think it was four or five months. I cut myself down to half time. Since that time, it's just, it's just stayed that way. It's just been, it's just tight. That's all. It's just tight. You run a tight house. Church runs a tight house. It's just how it is. It's not, it's not a big deal. I, I'm just reporting, okay? I'm, I'm not trying to say anything here. I want to report. Is that cool? Because often I just keep quiet about it, and I think you guys wonder, and I want you to know. Um, and so, three-quarter time at the church, one-quarter time out earning a living with these hands, and I thank the Lord. It's been a great experience. He provides. He, meet my need, he meets my needs. I don't want you to think I'm going without. I'm not. God looks after me. He blesses me. He takes care of me. Not worried. Do you think sometimes it weighs on your heart or this or that or you wish things might be? Of course. But you know what? God has a plan, just like we heard about Daniel. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and call according to his purpose. My dear friend back there that I work with, George, got saved. Yeah, different things are going on. God is at work. I trust him in the midst of that. And I enjoy, you know, just the pleasure of serving this church. And again, you know, I'm not telling you because I'm going without. Uh, 
I'm just willing to rely on these hands to earn a living. That's all. And for me, this is God's provision. And as I think about our church, I, you know, I hope that my life will be an example to those who would aspire to, the, to follow the Lord in ministry. You know, I worked in churches in the past where I watched the senior pastor work. He went out and part of his thing was he had to earn a living. It was just how, how it was. And I saw him quietly do it and apply his hands to a trade and he never complained and he never, I want to say something else. He, he just didn't complain. He went about the work of the ministry. And you know, I don't want your pity. I'm, I'm just fine. I don't need your money. I'm just fine. You know, we're broken, all of us, broken, lowly people who Jesus pulled from the muck, from, from sin and from mire, far from arriving. I never want to give the impression that I have arrived. I have not. What I hope is that I'll win your respect and I'll win the favor of the Lord and that God will bless the work of his ministry, his ministry at CTK. And what I hope is that you'd gain a heart to serve. And I so appreciate what God's been doing in our church lately. I've just been watching different people step up and pull the weight. And I forgot to announce it again, Melanie. So now's a perfect chance. But one of the spots where we got a hold is just in cleaning the church. You know, Jamie took care of that for years for us. A vacuum was created when Jamie and Angela moved to the city. And so we're looking to establish teams. Melanie Simpson is organizing and coordinating that. If you would serve once a month, to pick up weight around here and put your hand to the plow with us in cleaning the church is a small thing, but it'd be very helpful. You can talk to Melanie. Amen? See, I told you, the kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus will touch your work. This will touch your finances. You know, yeah, just, I would say this. There are so many ministers out there who peddle their stuff to get to get rich schemes and fleece God's people. And I just want to completely reject that. I don't want any part of it. Just give me Jesus. Give me the word unadulterated. Let's preach it. Let's pray that God will bless it. Let's watch what God will do by the work of his spirit. Amen. Paul was dealing with a church where, where some of the attitudes that were happening in the midst of them were affecting the whole. And so he spoke these strong words. See, the reach, he said, I command you. See, the re what we're seeing here is this, just that the reach of Christ's rule has to affect the way you work. It has to affect the way that you handle your finances. You know, let me ask you this. How is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ affecting your work habits? How is the gospel affecting your financial management? The reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, how's it adjusting the value and the way that you work and the way that you deal with your finances? Look, does Jesus reign in your work? When nobody's looking and you can cheat and you can get around the deal, does the Spirit say, honor Jesus in the midst of this? Do it because you love Jesus Christ. Not because anyone sees. Look, that's the work of the kingdom in your life right there. When nobody sees, nobody knows, you can skimp, you can cheat, but to honor the Lord, you do what's right. You know, 
I was standing the other day in London Drugs and the electronics department, being a man, looking at the TVs. No, bigger. <laughs> you know, just uh, enjoying myself. Look, when you, when you go about the purchases of your life, your food, you know, your toys, your vehicles, your homes, whatever you spend your money on, does your love for Jesus Christ allow his lordship to touch those purchases? I, I, don't, I don't mean that to be heavy. I, I, listen, I was reading in my quiet time uh, on, on uh, I think it was, it was yesterday or it was, um, I think it was Friday. But I, I slotted this in here because it was awesome. I was reading 1 Timothy 3.17 and it says this, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Look, man, the Lord wants you to enjoy life. He's provided for you so that you would experience joy. There's nothing wrong with enjoying good things. Enjoy. That's awesome. God has provided so that all of us can enjoy life. But because we love him, we want him to direct that enjoyment. The purchases, the way that we work. Look at verse 10. He says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Again, those are, those are strong words, eh? Paul's not, not filling around. Strong instructions. Verse 11. For we hear that some among you, I'm sorry, guys, I'm going to wrap this up real quick. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You know, what Paul says here is super fascinating to me. He says, look, when, when people are not earning a living, something happens in their lives. They're idle. They've got nothing to do, followers of Jesus. And, and what they'll do is they'll become a busybody. They'll become a meddler. They'll start to pry into their neighbor's lives. They'll start to pry into the work of the church. Look, you know, when, you, when, you, when, you just, when you're busy about work, you don't have time to stir up strife. When you got your hand to the plow with the vision of what God is doing amongst the mystery, there's no, there's no room to interrupt and to get in the way there because, you know, it's been said, a working Christian is kind of like a, like a mule. You know, when you're pulling your weight, you can't kick. You can't kick back. But when we stop pulling your weight, then you, you can start to kick. And so Paul says this in verse 13. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. You know, Mark Driscoll said uh, recently, and I thought it was awesome, he said this, grow weary from ministry, but don't grow weary of ministry. Jesus took a lot of naps but he never got tired of caring for people. Look, you can grow weary in doing the work of the Lord, but don't ever grow weary in working for the Lord. In the midst of your family, your church, your workplace, all those things, I mean, we all know that it's so easy to grow weary in doing good. You know what I find when I evaluate myself? That when, I, when I'm getting weary in, in the doing of good works, it's because my motivation isn't in the right spot. I'm mean, going hard, but then I just start to get my eyes off the Lord. I got to stop, have a nap, refocus, spend some time with the Lord and get the motivation in the right spot. Do not grow weary in doing good. You know, why should we do good? Because your father in heaven is good. He is good. 
and we're being conformed into his likeness. We should be good. In Nahum 1.7, it says this, the Lord is good. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The psalmist said, truly, Psalm 73 verse 1, truly God is good. Don't grow weary in doing good. Verse 14, 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Look, this is not punitive punishment. This is, this is actions to bring correction in someone's life. Not, you're not trying to make this person an enemy. You're not trying to make them feel like they're not a believer, that they're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're seeking to help them. Just do it. Do it. Tough word. Let's wrap up right here. Verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself. We lit the candle of peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness in, my le- in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's stand this morning and pray.